Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today we have the great William Finnegan. He's the author of the memoir Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life, which won the Pulitzer Prize. He's also won many, many awards for his journalism covering political and cultural topics ranging from immigration, apartheid, to the sex trade, horse racing, and to drag queen professional wrestlers from Mexico. This is a writer with a lot of range. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Doug. Glad to be here. So your selection for drink today was the straight-ahead bullet bourbon and soda. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour that out and, and get us started here. Um, so you know the last person on the show who called for bullet bourbon also had a Pulitzer. So this must be some kind of brain food. Yeah, it's a little secret we share. <laughs> nice. I, I like how bullet has the, the uh, cork stopper. Makes me feels very old west. Like it makes me want to pull it out with my teeth. There's also bullet rye, but this is the stuff. Okay. All right, now we are officially settled in here. We're with poured. A bullet bourbon and soda. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Good to see you. So I wanted to start with your youth, and a lot of this is in Barbarian Days, as it's a it is a memoir. But for those who haven't read it or read it and have forgotten, you were born in New York and then raised mostly in L.A. and Hawaii. That's right. Um, my dad was a news writer at CBS here in New York when I was born, early 50s. Uh, and then, like a lot of people, we quickly, or my parents quickly, uh, decamped to L.A. And, and that's where I was really raised. Um, and he worked mainly in TV and film, and uh, at one point when uh, I was 13, I was the oldest of four, he got a job in Hawaii and moved the family there, um, which was just a dream come true for me because I was an avid little surfer. You are already a surfer then. I remember reading in, in the book, too, you've gotten quite a few scraps with other kids locally in Hawaii. Uh, yeah, actually, it wasn't... Um, as uh, gnarly as people suggested, that is the surfing scene. In school, yes. Um, school was actually a shock. Um, I'm not growing up in this kind of lily white suburb of, of LA and and uh, never been really in a, in a racialized environment. Um, like the school I went to, I was in the eighth grade and uh, it was all ganged up. It was, you know, Samoans here and 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 Portuguese there, and 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 the Howleys, the whites were didn't seem organized at all, and there were very few of them. And uh, and I'm Howley, so um, I got in a lot of fights um, that I didn't choose um, when I started going there. And uh, but the good part was the surf. Um, we lived down near um, behind Diamond Head, down to the water, and there's pretty good surf out front. And so it was just um, sort of paradisal to me, except school. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It must have been an early good lesson because one of the things in Barbarian Days and, and maybe a surfing life generally as you're traveling the world is what came through in the book so much is crossing cultural bounds, which you were sort of thrown into a situation where you was cross those cultural bounds quickly or it's going to be a real problem. Yeah, actually, the um, 
surf spots near our house. Um, one called Cliffs that was that was became my local spot. Um, was people from local backgrounds of all kinds. Um, I don't remember any other Howleys actually surfing out there. And I fell in with a, a family, three brothers. Is that still a word, by the way, Howleys? Is that a, is that yeah, a yeah, it's current used. Yeah, I, I think it originally meant outsider or something. Anyway, it means white people. And it also, there's, there's local Howleys, like people who grew up in Hawaii and kind of know the score, or maybe even can speak pigeon. Um, and then there's Howley Howleys, you know, people have, arrived more recently uh and but anyway i fell in with um these these three brothers the kalakakui's who are really good surfers the middle one was my age roddy kalakakui and his older brother glenn kalakakui was a fantastic surfer and he was sort of my hero and and we had surfing in common like roddy and i were really uh he was good but we were sort of at a level and chasing waves um similarly and and dealing with bigger guys and and more experienced guys in the same way and and so we really uh eventually those two and their buddy ford takara used to sort of keeping their boards at my house because it was closer to the beach than where they lived and and we were all on what are now called long boards and then we're just called surfboards mm-hmm. this is the mid 60s when, uh, when did the shortboard come so a long board's eight feet or so shortboard is maybe six feet yeah well long boards then were like nine feet or ten feet um and heavy and so that, like keeping them by the beach was was really a bonus for those guys um and uh and no leashes a lot of what you see now um didn't exist then um but as i say we just called them surfboards and then the shortboard was invented in 67 68 um that's when we first saw them um mainly came out of australia also hawaii uh and they just changed everything you know suddenly you're Longboard was worth nothing, you know. You're like throwing it off a cliff and trying to collect some insurance, you know, and and so you can get your first shortboard. Um, I would have been about 15, and um, which was just kind of an ideal age because we knew how to surf and and but we're you know small and still spy. willing to try anything at that point. Yeah, yeah, and and just able to adapt to shortboards quickly. Yeah. Um, older guys not so much. Um, so then it was just shortboards from then on. So I know you loved writing early on. I don't know if it was in the those early teen Hawaii years, but you were passionate about writing. One of the things that comes through in the book, your memoir, is you seem to have journals or travel journals, personal journals throughout these years that you could draw on as source material for your book. And uh, I know you went to a you went to an M. This is getting a little bit later. You went to an MFA program as well in Montana. That's right. So you always knew writing was something you wanted to pursue. I did, although um, I wasn't particularly self-conscious about it. I mean, I just did it all the time, kind of like surfing. I just sort of did it all the time. And um, I one of the key uh, moments in writing this book, actually, was I was thinking I would start it in Hawaii when I, we moved there and um, wasn't sure, wasn't sure. And then a box came in the mail just out of the blue um, from my best friend from those days from L.A., uh, kind of Dominic, who uh, had found this box in his mother's garage. And, and it was letters that I had written to him um, in 1966, 67. Um, and they were just voluminous. I mean, there were hundreds of handwritten pages. Um, I was writing them 10, 15 pages every night of like my adventures, like surfing mainly, but, you know, girls and, you know, the writing was abysmal. I mean, every single 
thing was bitching, you know, the surf was bitching, the girls were, you know, but, um, but they were really rich and, and I was just so lucky that, you know, they'd landed up in a box, landed up in a garage, she'd cleaned it out, thought to send it to me. And I just, just, it was like, you know, Proust's Madeleine does. I, I bit into these things and the whole period yeah. just came back. Yeah. It was so much detail. Um, so I also wrote a lot of letters, it seems. I, mean, I did not remember writing these letters. I just, they were in my handwriting, you know. It, well, it comes from the book because it is so rich and detailed and you evoke these moments and these feelings and, you know, it captures the, you know, it's cliche of coming of age, but you were coming of age and you capture all of that. And I was thinking it must be so daunting to set out to write a memoir, but I'm not, it doesn't seem like maybe that's what you did because the book, as as I said, was it's about crossing cultural boundar- boundaries, connecting with nature. It's a it's a reflection on surfing. It's all these other things. And the memoir is really just a vehicle to deliver all those things. You know, it almost felt like I didn't get the sense that you sat down and thought to yourself, I'm going to write the Bill Finnegan story. You know, you're doing all these other things. And it was almost like you sort of backed into a memoir. Yeah, no, I didn't do that at all. Um, and uh, I think some people read it and said, hey, wait, you know, this guy works at the New Yorker. We thought we were going to get the inside uh, scoop on you know life at the New Yorker or whatever, um, and there's none of that zero. I mean, I just it's it's almost like a running joke where I, I between chapters I'll yeah I got married and you know moved to New York and a few other things, but the important thing is I found another good way. Right. You know the whole thing is kind of structured around surfing that way with a lot of course filled in around the edges. I mean where I lived and and the people I knew. I mean it's primarily I would say about friendship um, above everything else. Um, some people who read it, who knew me and knew places I'd lived and surfed, said, why is you know this great surf spot that you surfed early in the day not even in here? And the reason was usually because I surfed it alone. You know, it, I was only interested in writing about, it, it's boring to say, and then I got another really good wave, and then this happened. Mm-hmm. It's just, whereas if there's a friend, you know, a relationship through which all these things passes and is happening, there's a kind of triangulation that, that dramatizes it and makes it less onanistic. Yeah. And I, that must be why it connected with so many people, because it's anyone could connect with this story, because it is about friendship and all these other things and, and surfing you evoke it in a way that someone who has never surfed can almost get the feeling, you know? Yeah, it's very much written for the general reader, not yeah. not for surfers. I want to spend a minute specifically on surfing, too, because in the surfing world, you are, you will probably deny this, but you are a god. And not for winning surfing tournaments, but within <laughs> the surfing sport, you are a huge and influential figure. And I, I surf, but I, I wouldn't say that I've caught the bug in the way that some have. And many of my good friends are surfers, and it's beyond just a hobby, as you know. It's way more intense than even golf when people get the golf bug. I mean, surfing is on another level. And for these guys, your book, Barbarian Days, is like their Dianetics. They are really, they're really uh, obsessed with it. When you, when you go to a break and you paddle out into the surf lineup, do you get recognized? Sometimes, yeah. Um, I, the other, other day, um, we had a good hurricane swell here um, from Fiona, and um, and a, a kid in the water is out near Montauk, um, although he's from Jersey. I mean, this is a really good swell. People were traveling distances to, to get to the right spots. Um, he recognized me, and, and he 
actually started quoting from the book to me, and I pointed across the lineup to an old friend of mine, Peter Spacek, who lives near Montauk and was out there. And I said, do you know who that is? And he said, oh, and he started quoting Peter. Like, That's Exact amazing. lines from yeah. the book. So it does happen, yeah. Yeah. I, I also want to ask you about the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch. Um, I so So listeners know Kelly Slater is one of the greatest surfers of all time. He's probably 50 years old, give or take, and um, a huge star and and probably wealthy as a result of all that. And he built a man-made lake that is 700 meters long, so almost half a mile long, 150 meters wide, about nine feet deep. And with this intricate, I guess, hydraulic system that he spent tens of millions of dollars on, he can generate over and over and over again the perfect wave. And I know you know Kelly Slater a bit, and I think you've been to the ranch. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I did go there um, to do a story for The New Yorker mm, three four years ago. And uh, it was it was quite disorienting. I mean, there was a, a video that dropped a couple of years before that, you know, Kelly revealing. Slater, by the way, is the best surfer in history. There's like nobody else close. Um, he's really extraordinary. And... Um, and everything he does, I mean, he, when he decides to ride a different kind of board, suddenly there's this, like, design revolution. Oh, my God, Kelly's on this, you know. Um, and and this, they're artificial waves. They've been around for a long time. Um, but they're always terrible. So, of course, Kelly secretly um, uh, invests in this thing and finds the the hydraulic dynamic specialists and scientists who are willing to... Uh, attempt this apparently very, very complicated problem um, to actually create a good wave um, and, and, in fact, a great wave. And it's out in the middle of nowhere in central California, nowhere near the coast. Um, and it'd been, he'd been doing it in secret for God knows how many years. And, and suddenly it was ready. And, and here was the video. Here's Kelly's wave. And, and it was, I mean, a friend of mine, a, a guy who's sort of the historian of surfer, uh, of surfer, surfing, excuse me, uh, former editor of Surfer Magazine um, named Matt Warshaw, says that there are two eras in surfing. There's like before Kelly's wave and after Kelly's wave. Because this thing is so much the sort of platonic ideal of a wave. So he really, he nailed it. It's it's a great wave. It's it's a great, great wave. I mean, there are all types of waves. Um, it isn't... Uh, so you can go left, you can go right, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, this actually has a left and it has a right. It has you know, flatter sections for hard turns, and it's got these great little barrel sections, and, and they can adjust it. They run this big machine, they call it the machine, up and down uh, some uh, set of rails next to the pool dragging a blade. What's it feel like to be in there, though? I mean, does it feel like you're in a man-made pool? Yeah, I just, I only got to ride a couple of waves. Um, I mean, everybody who gets there, that's a thing. I went there as a journalist, but I'm also just, you know, drooling the whole time right. watching right. these waves. And it's so, um, you know, literally surreal, like 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 entry-level surreal. Like is the water chlorinated or is it salt water uh, or what? It was it was fresh water. Um, I guess it's chlorinated. I don't know. But it was, um, you know, just to be in farmland, uh, you know, somewhere south of Sacramento and, and look across the field and see this wave that's just out of your dreams. You've never seen a wave like this in your life. Mm -hmm. And I should say, though, that that in the world of, of surfing, of riding waves, um, there are a million types of waves. And um, Slater himself 
his all-time favorite waves of places he's put on the most incredible performances. They don't look like this. It's not a it's not a simple it's not a straight line like and here's the perfect wave at the end of the spectrum. It's not quite like that. I mean this has a certain amount of power. Um the waves that he has has done the most incredible surfing on have a lot more power. This could he create wave. more power? Is this a limitation in his technology so far or know. could he get there? I don't know. I was talking to the engineers about that. You know, could you make it bigger? Because um, mm-hmm. it's it's fairly intense as it is, but it could be much more. How, how big is the wave? Uh, it's I'd say it's kind of head high in the main parts of it, uh, a little and it overhead. Creates a barrel like you can get in and that then it tube. Creates a, a barrel, and that on the right toward the end is really small. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's you've got to be able to you go hunch fast down and to... tuck really tight. Yeah. Most people wipe out in that section. Um, uh, really good surfers can do it, but. Um, it, at its peak, I say, it's a little overhead, I suppose. In some of the, um, in some of its iterations, it's got a, they, you know, all these computer programs. Okay, we're running it on this. We're running it on the competition. So model. if they put it on a setting, yeah, this it, the same wave just comes over and over again. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's, I spent enough time with the engine, the chief engineer who's working on it, that I see all these little variations, and he's tearing his hair out. I was mm-hmm. there during they had a professional contest there while I was um, reporting and and so he wants every wave to be exactly the same so it'll be it's like a level playing field is fair that's mm. unusual usually in surfing so are they starting to hold more contests in a uh, in a wave pool like this I don't know about more but they've had some big ones there yeah. and and there's talk about oh if we want to have you know a, a proper professional you know sp- Olympic sport uh, Serving was in the Olympics in Tokyo for the first time. Um, you know, it's got to be a level playing field. We can't just be waiting on the vagaries of the ocean because that's the usual thing in a contest is like it's half luck. If you get the right wave, yeah. yeah but, well, is it coming. also skill them? That seems like part of the competition is being able to get in the right position oh, yeah. and read the ocean yeah, and get yeah. the right wave. And then, and then, of course, everybody's always said that, that Kelly Slater has had signed some deal with the devil once mm-hmm. upon a time that, that when he needs a wave in a contest, God he gives just it to him. thinks hard and the wave comes to wherever he is. He's in the wrong spot, but the wave comes to him. Um, of course, it's, 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 it's not really like that. But, but I started to say this, this engineer guy um, would be tearing his hair out because he said the whole pool, the whole pond is rocking now and uh you could you couldn't really see it but he said there's a variation you'll see in some ways that first section will you know mush mm-hmm. out or something and he was right you know every way yeah. was not exactly the same which was he wanted to like leave it quiet for an hour so we can get back to our our, our lab conditions yeah so i want to ask you a hypothetical on that because you know when you're out in the wild and nature that has the beauty of unpredictability and variability and the setting you know it's not a farmland if the gods came down tomorrow and said, Bill Finnegan, you get one more wave in your life, and you can either pick your most beautiful and favorite surf break, and we're going to send you a pretty good wave, or you can have the perfect wave of your dreams in the ranch pool, oh, which would you choose? And, and then you get one choose. only. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't choose the ranch. Um, mm-hmm. It's just so... It's disorienting. It's 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 like what you've always wanted your whole life. Now that you have it, it's it's. You yeah. asked if it if it if it feels like an industrial setting. It really does. Yeah. You're riding next to this great roaring thing, and it and there's a bunch of pilings. You're sort of riding next to a pier, which which one does sometimes in 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 the ocean, but uh, it's 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 very far from ideal. And um, so yeah, there are spots. Um, most of them now well known and, and crowded. Um, I, 
I just asked for like one uncrowded wave at, you know, Cloud Break in Fiji or Honolulu Bay on Maui, like one of my favorite spots. Um, but it's there. It's impossible. I mean, the places are so crowded now. Yeah. And I'm getting more than I can only. When were you there? Like in the 70s in, in the in the book? Yeah. Must I be so first different. surfed. Um, well, we found this great, great wave in Fiji near Cloud Break, not Cloud Break itself, but a, a, a different sort of wave uh, in the 70s. Yeah. And nobody knew about it. Um and now, of course, it's super crowded. Um, Honolulu Bay, I actually, I moved, I dropped out of college to serve Honolulu after I'd seen mm-hmm. it. Um, I, I, that, my life changed briefly. And, uh, and that was 71, but, um, but it was already crowded. People hear that I served Honolulu Bay in 71. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, you had it to yourself. No. Yeah. <laughs> it was already crowded. Well, it's just, I, you know, I have three young kids, as you know. I know you have a daughter, college age. The, the difference now is all little kids get surf lessons or surf camps on every beach you go to. It's just totally transformed. But I want to break off surfing for a little bit because sure. uh, that is only, believe it or not, that is one small thing that you're known for among many uh, achievements. Before getting into some of the topics you've covered in your journalism, I want to talk a bit about your process first, though. So you're at the New Yorker, and I'm wondering, how does it start? Like, your editor is David Remnick. Do you walk into his office and say, here's an idea and you pitch him, I need a budget and some time to go do this? Or is it the other way? And David says, you know, Bill, here's an idea and here's your budget. Go get him. Yeah, you know, it's gone both ways with David. And But I've been there so long, I was with several editors before David. Um, and <clears throat> for better and worse. And uh, and then when he started, um, it was right after Tina Brown had been the editor. And I forgot about that period. She's yeah. British and of a very different um, sensibility, you would say, I would say. Um, and uh, kind of um, perfectly, um, I went in to see Remnick um, when he got the job, and he said, what do you want to do? And I said, um, this was in the late 90s, I guess, um, punk band in Montana, like a four-word pitch, and he said, go. Um, and and he and I both loved the, the sort of, brevity and 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 firmness of that conversation we're sort of on the same wavelength and um so they're the ones that i come up with um sometimes over you know uh some resistance and and sometimes it just the answer is just no um and there are others where they come to me and again sometimes i'm happy with it and sometimes i say no Mm -hmm. um but um most often it comes out of a conversation so can you take us through the different types of days in the life. I'm sure you know, there's days when you're in the office, days when you're at home writing, days when you're out in the field, many days when you're out in the field, I'd imagine, researching, observing. What, what's it like? Well, it depends on the piece, of course. But in general, I'd say I do a lot more reporting, uh, a lot more time reporting than than writing. Uh, it 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 really depends. I mean, I'm, what do you mean by reporting? You're... Well, um, I've done a lot of international um, stories, so I you know go to Venezuela and I'm there for you know X number of weeks, and that's usually limited. I mean, I'll do a lot of reporting outside, you know, phone reporting and, and talking to people who know something about Venezuela. But but basically, it's the trip, mm-hmm. uh, and then you write you know a letter from uh, or or you know a reporter at large, Venezuela, um, and I've God knows how many places I've So gone. these are like thousand word pieces or something as opposed to No, no, to these would be, well, it's changed over the long um, time I've been at the New Yorker. When I first started, I think my first piece was 60,000 words. 60,000, that's yeah. a novel almost. Um, yeah, it's, it was 
two-parter. The uh, average I mean, novel I is 80,000 words. Um, so big reporting pieces mm-hmm. were all multi-parters. Um, mm-hmm. And and we don't do that anymore. And you know the the business has really changed. Um, so now uh, be like between ten and fifteen thousand words for a um, you know a, a big serious report on on. I mean Venezuela is a good example because it's it's a country in in crisis and and it's it's hard to explain. And then do these come out in installments in the New Yorker over a period of time, or it'll come out in one issue? No, that'll be just one piece. And yeah. so. In that case, the writing probably takes longer than the reporting because the reporting is so intense, and and um, that's almost like conflict reporting. But it's way it's it's mm-hmm. you know um, you're always kind of concerned about your safety, and um, and I used to do a, a fair amount of conflict reporting, uh, basically before my daughter was born. And I Sudan was one of them, right? Yeah, Sudan, Somalia, and Mozambique, the Balkans, a lot of yeah. um, places that. Um, I was interested in and 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 readers want to know what's this war about um and uh well one one of the topics i want to know about and i'm sure listeners and readers want to know more about is immigration and you've done a deep dive there i know you did a profile piece of the arizona sheriff joe arpaio back in 2009 so i'm want to get your thoughts on immigration and if your thoughts have evolved in the, I guess, now 13 years since you did that profile piece. And I also want to get your take on the Martha Martha's Vineyard dust-up from a little while back. Yeah, I didn't follow that as closely as, as some of my colleagues did. But um, it's actually, this is, from what I can tell, the, the antics of the Arizona governor, the Texas governor, the Florida governor, um, you, you know, just grabbing... Uh, People undocumented immigrants and, and sending them off to to big cities and in one infamous case to Martha's Vineyard um, uh, are very much like our pile. I mean, he also he was the sheriff of of Maricopa County, you know, Phoenix, and um, and he was really into this this theater of cruelty. You know, he he would. Did um, you spend some time with him for the profile piece? You got yeah, to, you yeah. Got to- interview him many times yeah i just i just ran around with him watched him do his job um he was amazingly open i mean i heard stuff that seemed to me um entirely illegal that he was cooking up with his his uh deputies and his buddies and uh and and everything was for the press basically so he was happy to have a reporter along even though i was hearing all this really um self-damning stuff and and he actually was pretty stand up about it some of it you know came out in the magazine and and he was asked about it you know did you really say this or do that and what did he say um he meant to say oh i thought that was off the record but he had some other off the wall expression basically confirming affirmative yes i said that he he didn't most people like back away from it no i'm being misquoted Mm -hmm. um not him he just um said yeah i said it but you know he wasn't supposed to put that in the new york times as he continued to think i was from i mean he, he didn't really quite get what I was doing. But um, but as I say, he was really into, oh, making his prisoners um, work out in the desert and the, in the heat and, and wear uh, stripe, like concentration camp stripes and, mm-hmm. and then pink. He'd put them in, like whatever he thought was funny. And, and he had support. There was enough kind well, of- Well, did you get a sense it's different? You know, here in New York, we're not exactly a border state. You know, Arizona, you know, the states you mentioned, it is different. When you were there, did you feel like, you know, this is a different place. I can see there might be a different perspective or... or 
Well, obviously, in, for instance, in Phoenix at that time, it changed. Um, this kind of um, theater at the expense of undocumented immigrants, mainly, mm-hmm. um, was very popular. You know, people felt um, threatened, perhaps, by by the um, numbers of people coming over the border. Um, I mean, the economy's changed since then. A lot of things have changed. I mean, um, we've got... Um, you know, tons of jobs um, going begging at the moment. Um, and so I haven't actually worked um, near the southern border for a while. So I don't know if anything's changed. But to watch, you know, Greg Abbott in Texas or DeSantis in Florida or Ducey in, in uh, Arizona pulling these stunts um, using, um, you know, poor and desperate people as kind of um, pawns in, in a political game, um, I mean, really dehumanizing stuff, if you ask me, um, suggests to me that there's still, you know, a um, uh, a political market for that, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, as I say, that the economy's changed, a lot of things have changed. You've got Latino majorities in some of these places that that were formerly um, kind of white rural communities. Yeah, it's a it's a nut that our country still cannot crack. The the other interesting article you did that I want to ask you about, though, is on horse racing, because I know you did this piece in sort of pre or early COVID days when the sport of horse racing was in an existential mode. They were really on the ropes for issues of, you know, the abuse to the animals. They're taking diuretics before they race, so they, they urinate 30 pounds before they then go run hard. And even Gavin Newsom was out there saying, you know, we may need to put a stop to this whole whole sport. And you wrote a terrific piece, then COVID hit, and everyone was sort of like, eh, I guess we're moving, you know, it basically got knocked off the front page and uh, not really discussed. But can you tell us a bit about your work on that piece and your thoughts on horse racing? Yeah, it was, it did straddle the um, beginning of the pandemic. And and I think I'd done all my reporting. I was, it was primarily focused on a racetrack, a famous racetrack in, in Southern California called Santa Anita, um, that it had a rash of, of um, horse deaths uh, on the track, um, both in training and in races. And the question was why. And so I sort of dug deep, hung around there quite a bit, talked to a lot of um, trainers and you know people around the tracks, um, jockeys and others, um, owners, trying to figure out why this was happening there in particular. And yeah, there's, you know, doping is a big part of horse racing. Turns out some of it legal uh, and only in the U.S. and not elsewhere and and a lot of it not and some of it detectable and some of it not. Um, And uh, training practices, I mean, more risky to the horse's health and, and 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 less and and got sort of deep into all that and and the some of the abolitionist arguments like why we shouldn't have horse racing, um, which you know edge over into the um, uh, kind of fringe attitude that well we shouldn't have pets we shouldn't be using animals for anything mm-hmm. any purpose and um, so I sort of took on all that philosophically as it were but was basically doing a, a investigative piece and and came up with a with an argument about. Um, why they were running in Santa Anita on unsafe track um, that's much more likely to break a horse's leg um, than, uh, than than other conditions that you could wait for. Um, I mean, they had a rainy winter, mm-hmm. and and they didn't do this, and they did do that, and, and the track got more and more dangerous. But, but they, with a profit motive in mind, I would say, um, kept pushing, that is the owners of the track, um, you know, you got to run, you got to run, and what do you know? Horses started breaking, breaking down. Horse can't, yeah. can't survive a broken leg. 
But you, you have such a range of stories and you're informed on such an array of stuff. I, I wanted to ask you how you stay informed on all this stuff and what are the what are the sources of news that you go to to stay informed and sources of news that you trust? Well, it really changes from piece to piece. You know, if I'm... I mean, like on a day-to-day thing, just as Bill Finnegan, the citizen, oh. like how do you, what do you do day-to-day to keep up? Oh, I, I, I spend way too much time, you know, reading the news and going down rabbit holes. Um, so online... Some, I mean, I, I get the Times and and various magazines, and and uh, it just, I mean, I know that's kind of anachronistic in this in this age, but I'm I'm desperate that print not, you know, disappear. No, we, we still get it delivered. We get the the Times, the Post, and the Journal all all delivered in, in paper, all delivered oh, every good day. Good for you. Plus, good I'm you know, I, but I also do Twitter. You know, there's I have on my feed. I've got Reuters and. And then not only do I have all the basically the, the major news outlets from CNN to Fox to you name it, but individuals that I've come to trust. And then Twitter sort of works like if you use it that way, it works like the front page of the journal. You, you yeah. see something, just click down to that story yeah. and go. Yeah. Yeah. So a certain amount of my news reading is also online and reading generally, I, I'm sorry to say. Um, but um, but as you say, it's super convenient. You can make a lot of connections quickly. Um, and... But you know, my background is not really in news. I, a lot of people I work with, Dave Remnick, for example, um, came out of news. They 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 came up through a newspaper and and uh, and maybe have, have shifted over to long form or the the kind of narrative journalism we do at the New Yorker. Um, and but that's kind of all I've ever done. I I wrote fiction when I was young and and was kind of getting nowhere with that and got got tired of it, um, or 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 maybe a little disillusioned. I mean, I I bummed around, you know, in Did my you youth. Publish anything? Short stories or uh, barely, yeah, a couple short stories, yeah. and I had a couple of novels that were maybe publishable. One in particular, um, but um, while I was working on those, this is my twenties when I was basically a surf bum um, and living all over the place. I at one point got a job um, teaching high school in South Africa in a township outside Cape Town, um, and uh, it turned into a really, really intense year politically speaking. Um, the um, kids went on strike protesting apartheid in education as a black school, and uh, and it spread and became this big confrontation with the state. This was in 1980. It was sort of a you know a red letter year in the in the anti-apartheid struggle, and and I was just kind of caught in the middle of it, as it were, working in this township. You know, when one of the very few uh, white people around and. Uh, and the school was really intense, and I got to know some activists, both teachers and students, and and other people, whom I really, really admired. And and by the end of that year, I kind of lost interest in in the kind of fiction I was writing. You know, it was like the importance of politics and power and and questions of justice was was sort of overwhelming. And and that's when I made like a ninety degree turn and started writing nonfiction, primarily about politics and power it's there's such a different responsibility too i i'm straddling both myself and i've talked to a bunch of people who do a bit of both there's a different responsibility on the on the nonfiction side you've got your sources and you just a, a responsibility to the truth yeah um have you ever had a situation like the the judith miller don't reveal my sources or i'm going to jail kind of thing um no, I mean, no, I've never been really put up against it that way. Um, we have a pretty wonderful fact-checking department at the New Yorker that, that you you can end up 
leaning on too much. You know, I haven't quite got this right, but the fact checkers will figure it out, that kind of thing. Um, and and often lawyers get involved too, um, uh, things that are going to be dicey with um, uh, the people you're writing about, perhaps. Um, but nothing's ever ever come to uh, come to blows, as it were, where you know law enforcement's trying to find your sources or anything. Uh, in my case, um, and we started off talking about this memoir I wrote. Um, and that is a completely different form. I, you know, it's, it's, those are, that's private life, right? Those, mm. that was a whole life, every conversation, none of it was on the record. And now you're choosing yeah. unilaterally to put it in a book. So that's a whole different sort of responsibility yeah. to the people in your life and, and what, you know, who kind of has, has ownership of this, you know, should you really be putting this in your book about yeah. them? And, uh, and so that, not only involved a lot of fact checking with old friends, like is this what really happened? And it's just shocking how different everybody's. Yeah, every, every, I mean that's yeah. We all we go to like dinner on a Friday, and by Tuesday everyone's got a different version of yeah, Friday's dinner. Exactly, and so long negotiations with yeah. old friends and acquaintances and frenemies over stuff like that. Oh, that's a um, shame that that, that can and some turn. of it really sort of crazy. Um, and then and then you know just where people remember differently, and you think, well, I know they're wrong, but. She kind of has more rights to this mm-hmm. story than I do because it was more important to her, and I was kind of an observer. Yeah. And so, okay, we'll go with her version. Or lawyers um, getting involved, um, like the British are have got tighter libel laws than we do. Um, and uh, I remember when the British edition of of Barbarian Days was coming out. The lawyers saying, "Oh, wait, you know, um, do you have permission from this person to have this, you know, in your book?" And, uh, and so I had to go go back to some people including and, and beg and yeah well there's one thing they i remember they flagged um i described um someone's life as one long middle-aged orgy and and they said is this okay with her and i thought oh god probably not yeah so i i went to her and 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 you know showed it to her and asked and and she threw she a drink said, in you your face that yeah. in your book and i said yeah and she said, that's great. That's you know, hilarious. She's oh, that's like great. That was 90, not what I was expecting you to say. Now. That's awesome. And, and, and she's like thrilled to be remembered that way. So That's great. You never know. All right. Before we get to the lightning round of questions, I did want to ask you about rock climbing, which I know is a new passion of yours that you share with your daughter, Molly, and you guys do a bit of that. And I think even put a book out uh, together about that. So how much of, is that eating into your surf time? And is that, uh, that just sounds like a great way to connect with Molly. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to share with her. Um, she has just improved completely out of my league. Um, I mean, she's incomprehensibly good at this point. Uh, but she puts up with me. We still climb together. Um, and uh, I, it's, I don't know if it cuts into my surf time exactly, although I have surf buddies who are demanding that I quit climbing. Um, they point out that like every injury that keeps me out of the water is from climbing. Um, and you know, this one friend in particular keeps saying, hang up the pitons, Bill. And I want to tell him, pitons, that's like 50 years ago. But but he's the point's made, you know, like you only, you're getting old and, and we got to keep surfing and, and you can't be injuring yourself rock climbing. Yeah, that rock climbing. So I I watched a couple documentaries on that. I think Free Solo or something. I, I that is a sport. I have a fear of heights, so I will never, never get into that. Surfing is dangerous enough for me. So lightning round questions. These are just a couple of quick questions uh-huh. to ask you on a on a variety of topics. Favorite book as a kid when you were younger than fourteen. Ah, 
It was probably Tom Sawyer. Uh, it uh, there was a movie. It was this book that I read over and over, um, and and knew sort of back to front. And and to this day, I see somebody painting their fence, and I right, have to that's laugh the first and, thing you think about. Yeah. yeah, my brother and I had a whole story on that. But uh, favorite uh, books on the on your nightstand right now. Uh, I just finished a, a James Salter book that I'd actually read before about climbing called Solo Faces, and I didn't like it the first time and, and, and just just read it again with a completely different understanding. I sort of slowed down and, and trusted mm-hmm. it more. Um, what else have I got there? I've got a bunch of um, urban design and, and New York history books. I'm working on something about Penn Station. And um, so, believe it or not, I'm, I'm reading a contemporary biography of the architect Charles McKim, like turn of the 20th century. Um, it's really boring. This is just further proving the point of your your broad range of interests. Well, that, and... What it is is you have to like plunge down into these subjects yeah. and briefly become an expert, yeah. and then and then you forget most of what you learn. Oh, yeah, don't get me started. I read some great biography and I'm raving about it, and then a month later I don't remember any of it. A couple of TV shows you would recommend to listeners. Uh, my current favorite is um, a sort of British Scottish show called Annika. It's a it's about a Scottish uh, detective working for the Marine Homicide Unit out of Glasgow, and uh, it's really gory. And uh, you know these bodies they find in the water, and uh, and she but she's wonderful. The 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 lead the, she was a detective who keeps turning to the camera and and discussing you know. Shakespeare plays or or Norse myths, um, and so it's funny and it's exciting. And and uh, and the last season ended with a cliffhanger. Can't wait for the next season. Who all right? So you you've already answered who is the greatest male surfer of all time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna change the question up. Who's the greatest female surfer of all time? I'm kind of on the fence between Carissa Moore, uh, a young woman from from Hawaii, learned to surf the same place I, I used to live and surf. Um, who's won a number of world championships and and is really the most powerful woman surfer now. And uh, Stephanie Gilmore, an Australian surfer whom I've spent a little time with and beautiful style. She just won this year's world championship. Um, But she says, no, really, Carissa should have won it. They changed the format. Um, They're both, uh, they, they kind of trade back and forth. Okay. Now, I've read a couple articles about Barbarian Days possibly getting made into a a film with Amazon and that they were found a right. So I don't know where that stands, but regardless, who should play you in the movie version of Barbarian Days? Uh, well, yeah, there has been uh, a lot of attempt to make a movie um, and sometimes casting, uh, you know, somebody to play me. But the problem is that that it is sort of the story of my life. You know, there's from, you know, my childhood to my mm-hmm. my uh, dotage my old age now and uh and so you really need a whole series of actors well how about how about laird hamilton for the for the prime age you guys are both about six four and sort of dudely looking no no couldn't be couldn't be laird no he's he's this brute um he's no, hollywood <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think that um uh there was some notion that um What's his name? Timothée Chalamet. You know that actor? Oh, yeah. He's like uh, the it guy now. Yeah. yeah, he's a really good actor, I think. He's from New York. He's this kind of skinny kid. Um, and I was a skinny kid. And 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 that, so I could kind of see him playing like the, I don't know if, how athletic he is, but- Well, that'd uh, be great. So is there an update on, on this or- No, where I, is as far it? as I know, it's, it's, it's all like 
maybe, maybe, maybe all the time. Yeah, okay. you know, but great, Amazon great? was involved at one point. Yeah, right? Amazon's just got the option and has a finished screenplay, and and it's like casting green lighted it's not green lighted you know the usual all right well timothy and laird if you're out there well timothy he's just like my 20s um which is a lot of the books there's you know maybe a third of the book or half that would be a tough transition from him into hamilton i think but yeah yeah could happen you bulked up up physically all right last question one piece of good advice on any topic could be parenting surfing writing just living life whatever Mm. uh I, you mentioned parenting, um, and uh, I've got just my daughter Molly, and uh, I have had people say, "Why is she so crazily independent? She disappears into Kentucky and 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 you know camps in some gorge for seven weeks in a tent, climbing these gigantic cliffs, and and you're not even worried." Well, it's not true that I'm not worried at all, but in general, I'm just really proud of her um, independence. And and so there's something about, you know, not hovering over your kids um, mm-hmm. that, that lets them, uh, all kids are different and, and require different things. But if possible, um, let your kids do stuff they want to do. Yeah. Um, sort of a retro belief we need to get back to. You yeah, know, like I, my, hair, my like parents didn't hover over parent. me in the seventies. You know, you're just not fussing, and um, and it's hard to do sometimes not fuss, but um, but my wife and I make an effort at it, and uh, and Molly's is so far vindicated our our approach. <laughs> she, she certainly has, Bill. Uh, great to have you on. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, Doug. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you.